You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Last week we studied uh, Paul on his way to Rome and that he was involved in a two-week uh, colossal typhoon over the Mediterranean Sea uh, in a ship with 247 passengers. He, a prisoner, along with many other prisoners, under the command of Julius, a Roman centurion, they headed out, and after a long story, to make a long story short, man, they were tossed up and down all across the sea for two weeks. They thought they were going to die. Two weeks straight of seeing your life flash before your eyes. Hopefully some of you have recovered from your seasickness over the last week, and uh, we certainly sympathize with Paul and all the other shipmates there on the boat. But but uh, remember that Paul had a vision of an angel appearing to him, telling him that, you know, don't be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar in Rome. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul spoke that kind of halfway through the trip. Like, don't worry, guys. God's in control. I've got to go to Rome and, and tell Caesar about Jesus. So your guys' lives are safe. And then weeks went on and times of fasting, times of not eating, and uh, times of up and down in the ocean. And if you've ever been in, in the ocean deep sea fishing or something, you can sympathize for a moment of what these guys went through. But, um, you know, long story short, we see that uh, in verse uh, 42, they're making their way towards an island. The ship begins to break apart. Verse 42, the soldiers' plan were to kill all the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away. Sorry, we're in chapter 27, verse 42, just looking, looking back. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, a kind man we saw, wanted to save Paul and kept them from their purpose, commanding that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on board, some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land, which brings us to verse 1 of chapter 28. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. So they escape safely to land. Stories told of one balmy day in the South Pacific, a Navy ship uh, spied smoke coming from one of three huts on an uncharted island. And upon arriving upon the shore, they were met by a shipwreck survivor. And he said, I'm so glad you're here. I've been alone on this island for more than five years. And the captain replied, if you're all alone on the island, then why are there three huts? The survivor said, oh, well, I live in one and I go to church in another. And so the, the captain said, well, what about the third hut? The survivor answers with an embittered face, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> Paul's landing on the island of Malta would lead to it becoming a Christian nation and a Christian island inhabited by the church. No doubt sharing in its share of church problems. But... You know, this, this island that we find out is called Malta. It's a wonderful name for those of you that like milkshakes and malted malts. But, you know, for those that like islands, it has a great name because the name Malta means in Phoenician language, refuge. And it certainly was a refuge for Paul and for 246 other sailors and prisoners and uh, soldiers. Malta is an island about 17 miles long, 9 miles wide. It's located about 60 miles south of Sicily. And its small size makes it the world's smallest and most densely populated country today. Today it's a member of the United Nations and it's part of the European Union. So we looked at Daniel chapter 2 and kind of looking at the European Union, perhaps fulfilling Bible prophecy. Interesting to note that Malta is within that list. But as we see, they, they found out, the island's name is Malta, verse 2, the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, television series, Lost, you know that on the island, Jack, Kate, and Sawyer escape polar bears, smoking monsters, and the others, a group of hostile island natives. In The Princess Bride, Wesley and Buttercup escape three different terrors on their island, the flame spurt, the lightning quicksand, and the R-O-U-S's, which are rodents of unusual size. Well, here on Paul's journey, you know that? You watch Princess Bride, Anthony? Gosh. On Paul's journey to Rome, 
he comes in contact with a typhoon with the nickname Euroclidon, a shipwreck where he rides boards and pieces of driftwood to shore, a viper with the hankering for some Apostle Paul and some N-O-U-Ks, some natives of unusual kindness. These natives are called barbarian, or excuse me, barbarians, which is from the Greek word barber. It means that they're non-Greeks and they just kind of had this funky language that made them sound like they were just saying bar, 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 bar all the time. Very racist, of course, but barbarians nonetheless. They showed unusual kindness to Paul, to Aristarchus, to Luke, to the centurion Julius, and, and, and un, unusual kindness to 276 passengers, soldiers, prisoners who'd escaped this shipwreck. They made a fire, we read. For practical reasons, it was very rainy, it was very cold, and these unusually kind natives knew that there's something about a fire that just lifts the spirits. They were very welcoming. They helped Paul out of this time of being chilled. We know that this wasn't the first time that Paul was in shipwreck. This wasn't the first time that he was, as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, in perils of waters, spending nights and days in the deep, he tells us, in perils of the sea. In cold and in nakedness. He says that oftentimes he would be in these states of just major suffering that most of us, you know, can can barely really picture in our head. But we see in verse 3 that Paul was gathering a bundle of sticks. Even though the natives were the one that made the fire and they were being so helpful, Paul said, you know what, man, I'm not just going to be served. I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to go serve. You know, I'm going to go give my life as a ransom for many. And so he goes out, grabs some sticks and tosses them on the fire. And I love that. It's the Apostle Paul. You know, it's, he's an apostle. I mean, he's just like Peter. He's just like James and John, you know. And, and he's not above serving. It's a good lesson for us. We should be vigilant, looking for ways to serve. Even though something is being made on our behalf, a banquet of some sort or a fire. You know, they're, they're, they're making it for us. You know what? I'm going to get up and I'm going to help as well. I'm going to be a picture of Jesus being a servant. But we read that a viper comes out of the heat, fastens onto Paul's hand, and so when the natives saw this creature hanging from his hand, dot, 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 okay? Uh, You know, the story is told, it's not so much of a story, but these two snakes that were wriggling around in the jungle, and one of the snakes said to another, are we poisonous? And the other snake said, why? And the first snake said, because I think I just bit my lip. (laughs) Well... Not only did Paul get bit by a snake, it was a poisonous snake. It was a viper. And not only did he get bit by it, which is bad enough, right? He has this thing hanging from his hand. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. Don't like bugs. Don't like spiders. We have an earwig infestation in our house right now. We're spraying poison like I should have a growth coming off of me somewhere. You know, and I don't like snakes. I don't like looking at pictures of snakes. I don't like watching them on the Discovery Channel. Keep those things away from me. There better not be any pranks later on. I'm sharing this confidentiality. We're family, right? Okay. Well, you know, put yourself in Paul's shoes, okay? Not only did he just get bit by a snake, but seriously, can you guys transfer yourself into Paul's shoes for a second? Over the last two years, Paul has been imprisoned in Caesarea for doing nothing wrong. Okay, he's been like a monkey that's supposed to dance at the Herod's and the governor's beck and call. So he's been in prison for doing nothing wrong. And then the last two weeks, or really over two weeks, he's spent you know directly in the waves of a typhoon being tossed up and down, eating nothing for two weeks until the end of the trip when they finally eat some bread. Okay, so it's been a miserable two two years and two weeks. Then he's shipwrecked in a cold autumn ocean. Okay. He comes to shore on driftwood. He's freezing, bruised, scratched, no doubt has slivers from the driftwood, seaweed in the hair, sand in every crevice, salt water on the skin. Not only do I not like snakes, not a big fan of hanging out on the Oregon coast for very long. I like it for a little bit. Then you start getting sandy and cold and that stickiness. You know what I'm talking about? That salty stickiness. Who likes that? I don't know. People, I guess. Okay. 
Now he's just helping out, carrying a bundle of sticks. And when I first read it, I'm just picturing Paul in like this really nice apostle garb, you know, has one of those sashes, like he's the mayor of somewhere across his chest. He's carrying a, you know, a bundle that has like a strap around it, really nice, you know, and he just lays it in, trying to help out. But the dude was just shipwrecked. He's probably still pretty damp and moist. He might have a couple straps of his sandal broken off, you know. He's kind of limping, he's kind of got some scratches, you know, and he's just trying to help out, you know, and throws his bundle. And then gets bitten by this viper. Now, if it was me, I'd be like, really, Lord? Really? Really? You see this? You see this hissing snake? We didn't have enough little issue going across the Mediterranean Sea. Haven't had enough problems. You're going into worship in the temple and getting the beat down put on me by some Jews. Really, Lord? Really? You know, that'd be my breaking point, probably. But by the grace of God, you know. Lord, how about you take that angel that appeared to me in the middle of nowhere on a boat? Apparently he can go anywhere he wants and just talk to people. How about you take that angel and get him up to Caesar, get him to Rome. As for me, I'm going home, you know. I'm out of here. We don't see that attitude in Paul. I mean, we see an attitude that was focused on Rome with the purpose of getting the gospel out uh, to the farthest points of the world. And we see that God was going to use this viper bite. God was going to use this viper bite. Without the viper bite, there would be no verse 8. We're going to see there would be no other healings, other people that are, you know, they're giving reason to listen to Paul because I've just been bitten by a poisonous serpent. So let me tell you about this Jesus that kept me alive. And that was a little bit of a spoiler alert because in verse Four, it says, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he's escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. And uh, verse five, but he shook off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead But after they'd looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So, you know, there's, there's no swelling, no effects from the poison, but these, you know, these natives, although they're kind, the only thing that matched the high level of their kindness was their high level of superstition. I mean, they're making fires, they're making hot cocoa, you know, or whatever. They're, They're being hospitable, so you put the picture to it. And then they see someone get bit and they're like, this guy's had too many trials. We've read 2 Corinthians 11 and all the bad things that have happened to him. He's got some kind of curse on him. Run for your lives. But then they watch him and they're like, wait, he's not getting sick from the venom. He's not swelling up. He's not, you know, there's not an oozing or anything. He's totally fine. What's up with that? Well, he must be a god now. And you just see the fickleness of public opinion, don't you? You know, it's like, oh, he's the devil. Oh, he's a god. I mean, they go from one end to the other just like that. You see that in Lystra back in Acts chapter 14. You know, one minute they're wanting to worship and sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas because they healed a lame man. And they're bringing oxen into slaughter and they've got garlands all over them. We worship Paul and Barnabas, you know. And Paul and Barnabas rip their clothes and say, we're just men like you guys. Don't worship us. We're just human beings. We just love Jesus and he's alive and he's working in our lives. And then the Jews come down and start bad talking Paul and Barnabas. So the Lystrians, if you would call them that, pick up stones and stone Paul and Barnabas and actually kill Paul. He comes back to life a little bit later. And so you see just that fickleness. They're gods, worship him. No, kill him. You know, and here it's kind of the opposite. You know, oh, they're, they're murderers. You know, oh no, they're God. You know, public opinion, it just goes back and forth. It goes back and forth. And Paul, he was the victim of it almost every time. But why didn't Paul die at this moment from this snake bite? My thought is because God wasn't done with him yet. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus promised Paul that he would go to Rome and he would testify of him. So until that happened, I believe in Paul's life, Paul was indestructible. And I believe that's the case for you and me, that God has appointed a day for you and to me to die and either be with him in heaven or to stand before him in judgment. It's appointed for men to die once. And then after that's the judgment, Hebrews chapter nine tells us. So we're not going to die a minute too early or a minute too late. And of course, when someone dies in our life, it always feels too early, doesn't it? But as Christians, you and I will die at just the right time. He's appointed a day for us. And in that In between that time, we're to be ambassadors for him. We're to be used 
for him. Revelation chapter 11 verse 7 tells us about the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, who come down during the great tribulation. And they're telling everyone in the tribulation about Jesus and everyone's hating him. They're hating that call to repentance. They want to kill him. And it says there in Revelation 11 that when the two witnesses had finished their testimony, that the beast ascended out of the bottomless pit, made war with the two witnesses, overcame them and killed them. But it wasn't until they were done with their testimony that they were killed. The Lord knows exactly who you're to testify to. And when that testimony is over, when you're to go be with him. Had kind of a tragic week in our family and, in, and within our friendship circles. A girl that I went to school with, um, one of Lindsay's best friends, her cousin, young, probably 20-year-old, was out riding his motorcycle, was in an accident, and... Um, just, you know, immediately was knocked out to go into a, a coma, and they ended up having to remove his skull to relieve swelling. And so for a whole week of not knowing if he was going to survive, uh, one of his friends came and visited him in the hospital on a motorcycle. And when he left on the motorcycle, he was in a motorcycle accident. He died, and then later on, this friend of ours died. And so, you know, as, that's tragic, and probably one of the saddest things is we, were got, we got on his Facebook page and just saw he wasn't a believer. Um, in fact, it, it seems he was pretty far from the Lord. But um, by God's grace, you know, hopefully the, the Holy Spirit was speaking to him on the motorcycle. But, um, you know, just to know that that's so tragic and it hurts so bad. And I'm someone who's lost family members and what you might even say lost, you know, I lost my dad early when he was 47. I was 19. But to just know that, you know, the Lord's time for him here, it, it was done. The Lord had appointed, the Lord had numbered his days, the Lord knew. And that's really comforting for us who know that God is sovereign over all things and that God works all things according to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I remember my good friend Ben came to my dad's funeral and he just said, Rory, you know, just feel like this is a word for you that we know all things work together for good. And we don't see it. <laughs> all the time. We don't understand it at the moment, but we know it. And just know that in the midst of this suffering and the mourning that your family's going through, God's working it for the good. And God certainly did do just that. Not only was it not Paul's time to die, but if you look at Luke ten nineteen, a promise to the apostles as they're sent out. But, you know, I personally believe it's available for us today um, you know, that the Lord is big enough to work in miraculous ways. But Luke ten nineteen, it's a familiar verse to me from a scripture memory CD that I had in middle school. You can hear the song very, very wonderfully going through my head. But last service, I started singing it, and I won't do it this service. But Luke ten nineteen, Behold, I've given you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You know, and the Lord knows what he's doing. He knows that in sovereignty, there's times we do get bit by snakes. And in his sovereignty, we are going to suffer. We're going to die because of that snake bite. But God knows in his sovereignty that there are moments that he's going to come in and in his power, he's going to protect you from the bite or he's going to protect you from something else that would harm you and he's going to protect you. And I think that's what was going on in Paul's life was Paul had been appointed a date with Caesar to tell about Jesus to the emperor of the, you know, the greatest empire at the time and, and to, to preach the gospel. And nothing was going to harm him uh, until that point. And so uh, we uh, have a page upside down here. That's really classy. Um, but, uh, you know, Paul, Paul was able to see the sovereignty of the Lord working through the snake bite. As you see in verse 7, the snake bite led to another thing. That in the region there was an estate of the leading citizens of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. So this man, this Publius, it's Roman, it means popular. And uh, that would be a great name to have in middle school, but I didn't have that one. Uh, in Greek, it, it, the language tells us that this guy's the governor of the island. And the governor of the island, you know, he hears about the shipwreck survivors, you know, he hears about the snake bite and that there was no wound and there was no death, there was no swelling from it. 
And so this guy brings them in and receives and entertains them courteously for three days. And when I read that word entertain, I'm thinking, you know, Publius has some little stage in his house with little round tables with candles on them, you know, and they're doing little slapstick comedy. But that's not really the case. It just speaks of, they're just, he brought him in. He was hospitable. There was lodging. There was comfort. He took care of them. We see it in verse 10 that he provided really for all of their necessary needs. And isn't it interesting that that word in the New King James Version is used, that he entertained them courteously. And Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 tells us that we shouldn't forget to entertain others. That we should be like these natives of unusual kindness. Does that describe you? Are you unusually kind and warm and hospitable and, and helping others? And um, you know, just looking for those opportunities to let Jesus shine through kindness and through generosity? Um, because, you know, the, the Maltons were doing that and little did they know as they were entertaining strangers, they were really fulfilling Hebrews 13, three, because it says for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And do you think that those, you know, the Maltons, I don't know what their culture was really like, but you know, they're out there playing on the beach or whatever, suntanning. And here come these 200 shipwreck people. And they're like, whoa, what is going on? And they're just trying to help and trying to be kind. And it was unusual kindness, we're told. But do you think they really knew, like, they were actually entertaining angels? I mean, of course, Paul was a messenger, an angelos. He was an angel. He was a messenger, that part of angel. But Paul had visions of angels, didn't he? You know, he had angels protecting him. He had angels guiding him. He had Jesus with them. And did these Maltons know that we're actually entertaining and showing compassion for Jesus? And little do you know that when those times come to just be kind, to be a light, to sacrifice, to give sacrificially, God uses those times. I was in Bend this week and a guy three lanes over gets halfway out in the intersection and his uh, pickup dies, this old Ford, you know, and I'm over in a left turn lane and I just have such a heart for people. Cause I've been there. I drove an old Ford. I've been in the middle of the intersection. I'm like in the turning lane and I literally stop, put it in park and take off my seatbelt. And Lindsay's like, what are you, what are you doing? Am I going to help that guy? No, what are you doing? <laughs> You're not in the right lane to be hospitable right now. Okay. But just to have that heart, like, man, I just want to help people when I see them in need. And man, when we do that, who knows? could be an angel, you know, it could be just some person that's just been commissioned in a radical way to share the gospel. But verse eight, uh, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery and Paul went into him and prayed and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So this father had what it appears was dysentery, which is an infection of the intestines marked by severe diarrhea, if you wanted to know. But John MacArthur Jr. says that this was like a gastric fever, which is caused by a microbe in goat's milk and was very common on the island of Malta at the day. It was, you know, a, a result of poor sanitation and it was very widespread back in the ancient world. So just this, this horrible condition and uh, what did Paul do? Then he just stepped forward in, in faith. I actually think he was probably invited in there. You know, here's this guy that, you know, got bit by a serpent, apparently has some sort of, you know, if you were superstitious, some sort of magical power or something. Bring him on in. And, uh, and so Paul was obedient to go in in power and in boldness and in, in a very biblical way, lays hands on this dad and prays for him and heals him. Really personifying James chapter 5, verse 14, that if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We're going to come back to that verse in a second, in a few minutes. But we see just that biblical example that James gives us, that Paul followed, that we too should follow. If you look in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, if you'd flip over there, there's only a few verses I'm having you flip to today, which is unusual, I know. Mark 16, 15. And as you're flipping there, remember, everybody's flipping there. The rustling of the pages encourages me that you're not asleep. That's all I'm going to say. So even if you're not going to turn, just we're with you, Rory, okay? Um, so remember, the father is healed of this Publius. 
Then you have everyone who's sick on the island, 17 miles by nine miles. They're all coming to, to Paul and Luke and Aristarchus to, to be healed. And Mark 16 tells us something. The commission that Jesus gives us, and Mark records it. He says, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these will be the signs that follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Do you believe in Jesus today? Are you saved today? Man, you're going to cast out demons. You'll speak in new tongues. Spiritual gift we read of in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. We read of in Acts chapter 2 and 8 and 10, so on and so forth. The spiritual gift of tongues. You'll take up serpents. Uh, if, if you drink anything deadly, it'll be, by no means hurt you. You'll lay hands on the sick. Or they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So we have this commission with this promise for all sorts of power and the ability to do miracles. And these miracles, sad to say, you know, people abuse them and they use them instead of time in the word and feasting upon the word and studying to show yourself approved and, and, and planting doctrine and sound scripture into your heart. They, they kind of toss that out of the way and they just focus on emotions and experience and all of these, you know, uh, miracles, and yet we see biblically the miracles and the signs and the wonders. They'll never replace the gospel, nor will they replace the word of God, but rather they'll validate the gospel and confirm the word of God. That's something we've learned thus far in the book of Acts. But on the subject of, of healing, I want to kind of focus more on as we see Publius's father healed. We see Paul, in a sense, healed. I mean, he never really got sick. Uh, you see uh, the rest of the island in verse 9 who had diseases. They also came and were healed. And we got to ask ourselves, is healing for today? Is healing for today? I think if we didn't live in America, we wouldn't ask this question concerning healing, miracles, even going farther out, demon possession. You know, we've kind of coined it. It's, it's mental stuff now. We put that on it and just completely disregard that there would be anything spiritual going on. Uh, the spiritual gifts, whether it be tongues, healings, prophesying, all that. You know, because we live in America, we often shut that door off and kind of close the door to anything spiritual, supernatural, or outstanding done by the Lord. And I think we see it less in America because of our dependence upon ourselves or our dependence upon medicine, or our dependence upon others. I mean, the, num the ratio of doctors per people in America, it's so much better than it is in any other country. And we have the ability to just seek doctors first when we have any type of illness, rather than going to the God who heals, the God who created, and asking him to just to heal us right then and there. Uh, so seeking doctors First, depending upon ourselves, medicine and doctors, you know, they're, they're great. And I believe that God uses them. But how often are they the first source that we seek? And really the last thing, if it's even a thought at all, is to go to the elders and get anointed with oil and to be prayed for, to put ourselves on the prayer chain. I mean, I just noticed this week we had one, um, uh, one or two yesterday prayer emails. And that was like the first in like a couple weeks. And it just dawned on me like, Man, are, are we praying? Are we letting each other pray for each other? Man, get your name on that e-prayer you know, e chain, okay? Because we want to be praying for each other. We want to know what's going on in your life. Anywho, so often we go to the doctor first or go to the medicine or the pill rather than going to the God who knows every cell in our body, knows exactly what's wrong with us. And once you say that some priority mix-up, there's an, something is out of order in the way that we do things there. I also believe that sin and unbelief quench what God would want to do. So, you know, more than that even. But we're reading um, a book in my discipleship group called uh, Radical, and it's by David Platt. And uh, this chapter that we read this week, chapter 3 in my discipleship group, um, the, the, the subtitle of the book is Radical taking back the uh, Christian faith 
from the American dream. It was in chapter 3 that we read that the American dream was a term coined in 1915. And kind of the, the definition of it is that, you know, that every man and woman would just function to the absolute best of their ability, kind of be all you can be, you know, uh, philosophy. And that everyone else in the world would see that and all of their accomplishments and they would give them praise for what they did in their own ability. And David Platt in this chapter just says, man, we need to crucify the American dream and that ideology that we're reliant upon ourselves and what we can do and who I am and my Americanness and my hard work ethic and all of that. We need to crucify that and we need to come back to the idea that who God is, what he can do, and is he alive and able to do it today, which I believe that he is. And so he shares this story of uh, he was teaching in Indonesia at a seminary, and in Indonesia, they're persecuted by the Muslims over there. Christians are persecuted. And at the seminary he's teaching at, in order to graduate from seminary, you have to plant a church in a village, and it has to have 30 people going to it before you'll graduate from seminary. So that is Woo, that is a high qualification right there. But, uh, you know, these guys at the graduation ceremony, man, they were just rejoicing in what God had done in, in these churches that had been planted. And uh, they sorrowed over two of their friends that had been martyred in the church planning process. But one of the guys came up to David Platt and he said, man, um, I'm a, I'm a jujitsu ninja. Okay? And I became a Christian. And I went out on my mission to start this church. And I went into the village and I'm kind of in the, the main area. And a witch doctor comes up to me. And, you know, kind of the mayor of the city kind of controls everything. And this witch doctor says, you know, uh, come out in the street. Uh, I want to fight you and I want to get you to leave our village. And so David, or this guy says, man, I'm, you know, I'm always looking for ways to show my skills at jujitsu ninja-ness, you know. And so he's like, okay, we're going to go out and drop a witch doctor. We're going to come back in. We're going to get this church started to get planted, right? So he goes out there, and as he's on his way out to fight, the Lord speaks so strongly to his heart, you don't fight anymore, but I fight your battles for you. And so this man took a chair out there into the road with him and set the chair out and sat in the chair opposite the witch doctor, and he says, I'm not going to fight you. I don't fight my battles anymore, but God fights my battles. And uh, just then the witch doctor begins to cough and then begins to choke and then falls down dead in the middle of this open road town square area. And the whole village fears God and comes to Christ. And this guy had more than 30 people starting up his church plant. And just the whole idea of that, that my discipleship group and I were just talking about is how much we rely upon ourselves and our wisdom and, and, you know, our little ways. And just, we push aside the great things that God wants us to do for him as, um, oh shoot, just blanking on the name, this awesome missionary to China. It'll come back to me in a little bit. Uh, he always would say, um, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And man, if we would live that way that, you know, God is bigger than the amount of money I have in my wallet right now. God is bigger than the health I have right now. God is bigger than the, um, than the prognosis that the doctor has given me. I mean, goodness gracious, who is this God? He's so much bigger than we, than the box we've put him in with our American dream crud, you know? So let's start living like we believe the God of the Bible is alive today and his promises are true for us today. And so I believe that's one reason we don't see healing today is just we're dependent on our own resources rather than on God's power and his resources. I think there's uh, other hindrances to healing our uh, sin in our life that's unconfessed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, a lack of belief we read of in Mark chapter 9 where this dad just says, man, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, I think we've seen abuse of healing ministries in these televangelists uh, tele and other tent revival type things. Not that all of them are bad, but there certainly is an abuse out there. Uh, and it just turns us off to even thinking of asking for prayer. When you look at Benny Hinn or Todd Bentley, you know, who would, who would um, kick old ladies with stage four stomach cancer, kick them in the stomach with his biker boot because God told them to, or they wouldn't be healed. And then the woman collapses in pain and you find out no one was ever really healed. And, and that kind of stuff just, you know, it, it puts a bitter flavor in our mouth to even ask the Lord. 
But, you know, are we going to look at the failings of man and, and let that negate the promises of God in the Bible? Or are we going to just, in, in purity and testing everything according to the scriptures, believe God at his word? As it's always said, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Okay? And so these signs will follow those that believe. They will pray for people that are sick, and those people will be healed. I have some personal experiences with sickness and illness. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, I remember my dad was sleeping at night, and he began to think that he had fleas in his bed. He would just itch really bad. My mom, who slept in the same bed as him, uh, was like, I don't feel anything. And so they decided to bomb the house with a, a pest bomb, you know. So we went to church one Sunday and bombed the house, spent the rest of the day in our backyard, went in, seemed good. Uh, Dad went to sleep the next night. He has fleas again, okay? So there were these little weird things showing us something was wrong with my dad's body. We went to, um, like a week later, we went deep sea fishing. And just the whole time, people are throwing up everywhere. We had an, a Euroclidon, like Paul went through. They're outside of Newport Bay. You know, I was the only person that made it through without vomiting, you know. And, and we come back in, and Dad's just like, I have a pain just in my chest. And I just, I don't know if we slept on, I slept on the fifth wheel ball last night in the pickup or what. But, man, I am hurting for certain. So, you, I just remember as a fifth grader, you know, the things that stick in your mind. We went to KFC. I got some popcorn chicken. And then we went to the hospital in Corvallis where I found out as a fifth grader that my dad had um, really severe Hodgkin's disease marked by a grapefruit-sized tumor in his chest that was wrapped around his heart and his lung. So immediately they put him into chemotherapy. That shrunk it down about baseball size, and then it began to grow like steadfastly again. So they took my dad and my mom, and they sent them down to Stanford Medical Center so that dad could have a bone marrow transplant. And my sisters and I went back to our family ranch and lived with my aunt and uncle. And uh, so separated from my family for a while, but while dad was down there, he went through radiation. He just burns all over his body. Uh, he lost his hair from the chemotherapy. He got shingles on his back, just going through like a Job experience, but um, making it through the bone marrow transplant, which they basically call it dying to live. It just takes you to the point of death so that you, know, you can get all the cancer out and bring you back to life again. And so after the bone marrow transplant, we were so excited. We thought he's going to be better. He's going to be healed. A couple months go by, move back to Corvallis, find out that the cancer is back. And, um, and they treat it again with chemo. It goes away. And we had about five different reoccurrences of this cancer between my fifth grade year and my seventh grade year. Dad was uh, going to vet school at the time. He was accepted during his bone marrow transplant without an interview to Oregon State Vet School, where you then go to Pullman, Washington for small animal training. First day of school in Pullman, Washington, my mom pulls up and she's sobbing and uh, just like, what's wrong, mom? And she said, we went to the doctor today. The doctor found out your dad's just riddled with tumors. Looked like he got shot with a shotgun, tumor gun or something. Tumors all over his body. And the doctor told your dad to go home and, and get ready to die. Get your affairs in order. Spend some good time with your family. Well, my dad, who had gone through all of this so far, been accepted into vet school without an interview, just felt, God has called me to be a veterinarian. And He's not called me to die. I don't feel like my appointed time is up. And so we went to a church up there in Pullman, Washington, and that church prayed for my dad. And that night, my dad was healed of Hodgkin's disease, never to have it again, every tumor out of his body. He went back to Dr. Death and told him, look what my God can do. Healed of cancer. So pretty exciting, huh? So 10 years later, just about, in 2001, uh, dad had a stroke. In fact, this is the 10-year anniversary this uh, week of my dad passing away. He ended up having an aggressive form of brain cancer uh, that, that took him very quickly. And so to have just this understanding that God can heal when he wants to heal and he can glorify himself in a healing right here, right now, contrary to any doctor's opinion. But then there comes a time where you pray for healing and, and the Lord's ultimate healing is to get you in heaven and get you a glorified body as soon as possible. And that was my dad's case. Dad's in heaven. He's in his glorified body. I bet he's got a six pack, you know, and that's, he had one before, um, <laughs> a while before. Okay. Anyways, um, but to just know that, man, God is sovereign in that God knows he's able to heal. 
And sometimes he's glorified more through the pain, through the suffering, or through the death. He's all in the business of glorifying himself, whether that's healing or suffering. So, personal experience. As a uh, youth pastor, I was about 22 years old. It was like my first year being a youth pastor. We got a call from a woman who had a massive tumor in her body. And Calvary Corvallis said, hey, Rory, you know, you're the only guy here right now. Can you go up to the hospital and can you pray for this gal? And I felt, kind of felt inadequate, you know, it's just me, you know, and okay, you know, and just go up there. Never met this lady. I don't even think she went to our church. Go up there, small chat, you know, and they're just kind of like, well, I'll pray for you and go, you know, and pray for her, anoint her with oil and leave. That night we had youth group uh, and I get a call from this lady and she's just hooting and hollering on the end of the line because as she was to go into surgery that evening for, um, for this giant tumor, uh, the doctors found that that tumor had disappeared. It had been gone. And so we were able to rejoice. And then once again, a couple months later, this gal died of a different type of cancer, you know? So that's pretty much my experience with it. But, you know, don't let Rory pray for you. <laughs> but, you know, that to say, I do have a more encouraging story. Um, but that to say that, you know, the Lord heals. And the Lord allows you to, to suffer. And the Lord allows us to die. It's part of the sin. It's part of the bondage of corruption um, that, that will, will die. Um, but one more praise story. Just kind of, you know, thinking through these times that I've seen the Lord move radically. Um, when I moved over here, I had severe jaw pain. My older sister, Heather, had severe jaw pain. Had to have surgery when she was a freshman in high school. And TMJ. And so, you know, moving over here, my jaw would lock up. I couldn't open my jaw. Excruciating pain. You know, I'd be at Pizza Hut with, or pizza with some of you guys and can't open my mouth to shove a piece of pizza in there, you know, and just pain, horrible, just grinding and cracking and locking open, locking shut, just pain, you know, and I'd come to the pulse, our prayer meeting, you guys would pray for me and just, I remember time and time and time again and just like, well, it's my lot in life, you know, go up to Portland meet with the surgeon that did my uh, sister's surgery, get an MRI done, find out that, yes, this disc in my jaw has slipped down. There's no cushion. It's bone on bone. Not only bone on bone, your nerves are in the middle of your jaw and your jawbone, and you're biting on your jaw nerves, you know, and it's grinding and cracking and crushing and all that stuff. I'm like, okay, let's schedule the surgery only to find out my insurance isn't going to cover it. And so, shoot, just paid $3,000 for an MRI. That was awesome. Came home, and it probably wasn't, a week later, that all pain, all locking of my jaw was gone. I haven't had pain since. So glory of the Lord in that. So neat. Frank and Loretta here in last service, they were just two people I know prayed for me every day. And every time I'd see them, how's your jaw? It's not good, okay? Quit asking. God's not going to heal me, you know? And then God healed me. I believe he healed me. And uh, look. Okay? So... <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for not letting it lock up right then. <laughs> so some personal experiences and just knowing that, you know, you go to other countries, you see healing all the time. You go to other churches, you see healing all the time. Um, but the question is, does God heal every time? Uh, the fallen world comes with illness. Timothy had a stomach illness that Paul said, take some wine for your stomach. Take some Maalox. You know, that's basically the Maalox of the day. Take some wine. And no doubt Paul prayed for Timothy, right? No doubt Paul prayed for healing. And they just said, practically, see a doc, you know, take the Maalox, you know. Um, you know, the fallen world comes with death, the bondage of corruption. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, man, I had this issue and it's a, like a messenger of Satan to buffet me. You know, whether it was a fil, uh, physical, he, he had physical illness, his eyesight, he had a horrible case of ma malaria that, that brought him close to paralysis, church history tells us. And, and he just says, I had this horrible thing from Satan to buffet me, he says. And three times I prayed to the Lord that he would take it away. Three times I prayed. And the Lord said this, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Hey, when you're hurting and you're crying out to me and you're desperate for me, my strength is made perfect. So Paul says, therefore, I must most gladly, 
I'd rather boast in my infirmities and in the, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my sicknesses and in my reproaches and in my needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So does God heal every time? No. He doesn't heal every time. He allows those times of buffeting. He keeps us on our knees so we're reliant upon him that he could be glorified, that we would stay humble. But does God heal? Yes. It's really a paradox within Christianity. It's two truths that seem to be not true. Pray for healing. Does God always heal? No. But pray for it anyway. (laughs) Just pray and ask and see what God would do. There's many ways we need healing today. Illness and struggles. One way is that we, like Paul, have been bitten by a serpent. You read in Genesis of the serpent, the devil who deceived Adam and Eve and made them sin. And we too, both inherently through you know, our long family tree line from Adam, we inherently are sinners, bitten by the snake. But even imputatively, because of the sin that we did, we have more sin heaped upon ourselves, and we have truly been bitten by the viper. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, you read of Israel traveling by way of the Red Sea towards the land of Edom. And it says they became very discouraged along the way, so they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There's no food here. There's no water here. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. They call God's gift of manna worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among them to bite the people. And they bit the people. And many people and the children of Israel died. Therefore, the people came back to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Will you pray for us, Moses? That the Lord would take the serpents away. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it should be that everyone who's bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What an opportunity to show some faith, huh? I've been bitten by a serpent. I'm in pain and agony. I think I'm going to die. I probably am going to die. People are dying all around me. And you want me to look at that brass snake up on a stick? Like all he, you know, you know, there were people that didn't do it. I'm not going to do that. Stupid. That faith is a crutch to you guys. Oh, oh, you know, and, but I just got healed. It's just a crutch. Get away from me. You know, ridiculous. Just believe it's so simple. We all know John 316, right? Do you know the verses just before it, the two verses before John 3, 16? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You've been bitten by the serpent of sin. You are going to die and you are going to go to hell. But just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness and by faith, people would look at it, believing God that they would be healed. So too, Jesus Christ has been raised up on the cross. His blood was shed that if anyone would believe upon the finished work that he did on the cross in shedding his blood, that he hung on the cross instead of you should be you up there. If you believe you will not perish. You will not die from this serpent bite of Satan, but you will have everlasting life. And you can be healed today. You can be healed of that today as we close in song. You can look up at the cross. You can look at Jesus, who really, he's no longer on the cross. He's risen in victory, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for you right now, the Bible tells us. But you look to the finished work of the cross, and you'll be healed, and you'll be set free and you'll be forgiven, and you'll be given eternal life. By his stripes, by his wounds, the Bible tells us, we were sin. He was wounded for our sin, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we're healed. 
Another type of healing today that perhaps is for you would be a healing of an unclean spirit. We pass off demon possession so often as just medical illness. And you know, oftentimes it might be. I say oftentimes, I say sometimes it might be. I'd say more times it would be spiritual possession, demonic possession. In Luke 8, in two different times, you read of people who would be, and the word is, healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And perhaps you come here today. And if you look biblically, you're not a Christian and there's demonic influence, there's demonic possession, there's, there's demonic oppression. And you would come to Jesus today and you would be healed. It's available for you today. Let's flip, final verse and we're done. James 5, I want everyone to flip there, rustle those pages so I know you're awake. James 5.14. Everybody there? Still flipping, so. James 5.14. And this is, I'm not just reading this, okay? I'm saying it to you. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Is anyone among you sick of anything at all? Anything? Have you gone to a physician to see him about an illness, a disease? A cancer, a pain, a sore, an odd feeling, canker sore, ear infection, tonsillitis, rusty pipes, you know, whatever it might be. Are you sick today? Then let you call today for the elders of the church to pray over you. And for the last few weeks, I've just felt that The Lord would have us soon. I didn't know when that the Lord would have us have a time where the people in the church who've been ill and who've been sick could come forward and could receive prayer for healing today. And as I was reading through the first read today, I just felt the Lord saying, today's that day. Today's that day where we're reminded by Paul that if there's someone that's sick, you can lay your hand on them. You can anoint them with oil and the prayer of faith will heal them. And ours is not to doubt, is he going to heal me today? Or technically, what's the plan of his sovereignty? Today, we just come like little children. We say, Lord, I've got a bruise, a bump, a tumor, a cut, a disease. Heal me. Like the woman with the issue of blood, who for 12 years bled. Physicians couldn't figure it out. She spent all of her money on physicians. And she saw Jesus walking through a crowd and she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She pressed her way through and she touched that hem. And immediately Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, who touched you, Lord? There's thousands of people around you. Say, who touched you? No, someone touched me. I felt power go forth from me. And the woman confessed, it was me. I'm sorry. I just... He says, woman, your faith has made you heal, has made you well. And today that you would come with a childlike faith that even if it's the tiniest thing, a a hurt tooth or something, that you would say, God, you are big enough for me to come to you before I go to the dentist or anyone else that I would at least do you the decency of saying, you are my God and you can heal. And today I ask you to do just that, believing that you can. And Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.